The scripture lesson comes, as it will for the rest of the, the month of August, from the 8th chapter of the book of Romans, starting in the 12th verse. Hear these words. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption, whereby we call Abba, Father. It is that very same Spirit bearing witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, join heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Friends, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. So, Dr. Mabry Lunsford taught me philosophy in college. Yes, I've actually taken a couple of philosophy classes. And Dr. Lunsford was just an incredible professor. He was lecturing on Immanuel Kant one day, and he was just waxing eloquent. And he looked out the window about halfway through his lecture and got this far-off look, and he came back into the room um, emotionally, I guess, and he said, what class is this? And then we went, oh, this is going to be good. But Dr. Lunsford would come in at exam time, and he would carry the exams on his arms, and he would stroke them. He would pet them lovingly. And he would say, Y'all are going to enjoy taking this exam. I, I enjoyed developing it for you, and you're really going to love it. And that meant the grade point average of the entire class just went Psht. The other test that would happen to us would happen on Fridays, because on Fridays we would all sneak out of our late afternoon Greek classes and go home, and the teacher professor didn't like that. So to keep us in class, he would give us a pop quiz. Those were hard to take. Didn't like pop quizzes. And I thought about that this week, and what I thought I would do is, as a congregation, I'm going to give you a pop quiz. You ready for one? You didn't know worship would come with a pop quiz. This pop quiz has five questions, and I'm going to give you five situations, and you, as the students, are going to apply the correct term to the situation I give you. You got it? And you can grade your own paper, okay? We're going to trust you to see how you do. First, first situation. Here we go. A mosquito lands on your arm and you feel it alight on you. You slap it with your hand. Have you committed murder or manslaughter or in this case, bug slaughter? Question number one. Question number two. You are traveling in your car through the backwoods of Louisiana. You are listening to a radio station with crackling static in the background. A song on the radio station is playing that prominently features stringed instruments played with a bow. Are you listening to AM or FM radio? a fiddle or a violin, and is the music Cajun or country? 
Question number three, situation number three, and I know there is no Methodist in this room that is going to get this one right. Question number three, you belly up to the bar to order a beer. I'm just looking to see how you are. You belly up to the bar to order a beer. The barkeep brings you a dark amber colored elixir with a bitter nutty taste. Are you drinking a lager or an ale? Situation number four, you're living in 19th century England and you're helping to lace up your wife's corset, which you, being an unintentive cad, pull too tight. She hits the floor unconscious. Has she fainted or passed out? Question number last. You're at Walmart getting ready to pull in a prime parking place that you've had your eye on while somebody has judiciously backed out of it. And this guy in a BMW intentionally swings into the space you were looking to occupy and indeed you were waiting on and you get out of your car and prepare to yell something. Should you call him an idiot or a moron? Subtle differences, you say. Six of one, half dozen of the other, it doesn't matter. They're all the same thing. Well, not so fast. Let's see how you did. If you were premeditated in your attack on the mosquito, you grabbed a fly swatter as a weapon, you snuck up on the mosquito, you committed murder. However, reactively slapping the little bugger and squishing it is manslaughter, or in this case, bug slaughter. Number two, if you hear static, it's probably AM radio. It's the same instrument at a hoedown or a symphony, but if the devil goes down to Georgia with one, it's called a fiddle. And if you hear more accordion, fiddle, and banjo than guitar, bass, and drums, you can properly call it Cajun music. Now, if you're drinking a dark, nutty flavor, it indicates you're drinking ale. But only a beer snob really cares, and I don't know very many beer snobs in this part of the country. Right? Okay, just checking. Number four. Prudence, your wife, has likely fainted. Victorians called it the vapors. She's fainted there in the parlor, indicating a short period of unconsciousness. Passing out is more like deep sleeping and often involves insurance claims and attorneys. Number five, getting out of your car to yell at someone probably is not a good idea. But if you do, simply get out of your car and go, hey, 
If the guy in the Beamer answers with intelligible words, he's a moron. IQ between 51 and 70. If he doesn't answer or merely merely gestures, then you can correctly assume he's an idiot. IQ between 0 and 24. You didn't know those two were technical terms, did you? Understanding and using proper terminology is supposed to be a sign of intelligence. It's supposed to mean that we're educated, that that we've been around, that we understand these concepts. But knowing these subtle yet important differences is also key in the church as well, whether it's in the parking lot. And we hope at the parking lot, people just greet you with praise the Lord, glad to see you. Hope you enjoy the parking place, and how can I help you find a Sunday school class? Or in the worship space where the preacher uses a word like the Trinity. The Trinity can evoke heavy head scratching. You need an extra credit question? What's the difference between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Why should we in 21st century, postmodern, post-Christian America care? So what? Well, because we describe ourselves as monotheistic. We believe in one God. Yet we affirm the deity of Jesus Christ. We affirm the deity of the Holy Spirit and the person frequently identified as God the Father. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It sounds like we have three gods, not one God. But if we have one God, He's truly an awesome God, and He's at work in the world today, and He invites us into relationship with Him. He invites us to be participants in His spreading His love and mercy and His grace throughout our world. He left us as the church in charge of the thing we call the gospel. He left us in charge of and as stewards of the good news of Jesus Christ. Many over the centuries have tried to explain the biblical concept, construct that we call the Trinity, even though the Bible never uses the word Trinity. Children learn what the Trinity is in Sunday school. The Trinity is water, H2O, and the Trinity is water is water, Water is vapor, water is ice, but still at the molecular level, it's still H2O. That's a good illustration of the Trinity or the egg. The egg has a yolk, the egg has egg white, the egg has an egg shell. Or it's like the government. There's the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. And if you don't like that, we can go to St. Patrick's Cloverleaf and use that. Or, or, or I'm a living, breathing, standing here illustration of the Trinity because I'm at the same time a son and a father and a husband. We've got all kinds of illustrations, way to, to come up with what the Trinity is, and we applaud ourselves at our brilliance of explaining the Trinity, except classical theologians, when we try to explain the one and three and the three and one, and we illustrate it in such a way that the kids get it, or I understand it, the classical theologians and the systematic theologians go, shame, 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 shame on you. You have committed a heresy. Huh? 
every way I just talked about the Trinity was heretical. Did you know that? I committed theological heresy right here in the Methodist church. Modalism, partialism, Arianism did it all. There are two methods of illustrating the Trinity, not explaining, illustrating the Trinity I like. The Trinity is a palindrome. One and three, three and one. Palindrome is a word or phrase that's the same forward or backwards. So the Trinity is one and three, three and one, palindrome. Or the Trinity is a little mathematics. You know, one times one times one equals one. I like that. That works for me. So whether you're a linguist or you like literature and you want to deal with the palindrome or you're a mathematician and you want to have one times one times one equals one, whichever way you roll, I've just given you non-heretical but incomplete ways of talking about the Trinity. All the metaphors and all the explanations, though, fall short and we're left with little satisfaction by way of explanation. Despite our best efforts at explaining the Trinity, a full understanding seems to elude us, even those of us who've been in the church for a long time. It's been 46 years as a minister, and this is the first sermon I've ever preached about the Trinity. Even on Trinity Sunday, I avoid the subject. There are just certain subjects you don't talk about because you're going to confuse the Methodist. It's such a deeply theological service or concept that for the first time in 18 years, I'm preaching off a sermon manuscript. And it drove the early church crazy because I was getting finished before time. And usually when I'm preaching, I can look at the clock and stretch something. Didn't even look up today. I finished early. So now you know what's going to happen. I'm going to finish early. Church history reveals an eclectic and often violent debate over the metaphysics of the whole thing dealing with the Trinity. But here's a thought. Maybe in our modernist desire to define all terms correctly, we've missed the whole point altogether. Try to use definitive linguistic terms to define and describe God's a bit like trying to nail jello to a tree. Eventually the whole thing's going to fall apart. You might as well try to milk a gnat or sneak sunrise past a rooster. In his book, This from Wishful Thinking, Frederick Beekner says that out there there is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But that means for us that there is a mystery beyond us, there is a mystery among us, there is a mystery within us, and they're all the same mystery. Human language has distinctive limits on trying to define the divine. So rather than carping about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier, or whatever terms we're using these days, maybe we should be focusing on the real essence of the Trinity, the power of relationships. In Romans 8, Paul doesn't try to line out a systematic theology of how God works, but he uses Trinitarian terms interchangeably, the Spirit, the Father, Christ. He doesn't try to make it a treatise on metaphysics 
Rather, Paul sees God at work uniquely in a relational way, both within God's own nature and within His relationship with us. When we're rebranded, when we walk in the Spirit rather than in the flesh, when walking with Jesus becomes our default way of being, we're set free. We have new ways of thinking, new sources of energy, and we can claim a new future. And I threw that in just to make sure that you heard last week's sermon. Rebranding calls us into the mystery of the Trinity, into the depth of that loving relationship. After admonishing his Roman readers to explore the difference between living in the flesh, which means focusing on me, and living in the Spirit, which means focusing on God, Paul shifts language to relationships. Those who live by the Spirit are adopted by the Father as children of God and co-heirs with Christ. Did you know all Jewish children are adopted, the male children? When they're circumcised, they're considered adopted into the family. And Paul uses Roman technical language that Roman children, all Roman children were adopted. Even the biological children were adopted by their parents. And when they're officially adopted, they're officially brought into the family. They officially belong. But what Paul was saying about this relationship in Roman culture is it is subversive as it is salvic. Because when you are adopted as a Christian, when you're adopted as God is your father, Caesar is no longer your father. And for the Christian, it was an act of sedition. Paul talks about the Trinity in its being. The purpose of God, three and one, one and three, is to bring humans back into relationship with God, rescuing us from having to define ourselves through self-destructive pursuits. To say we have a relationship with God is not to say we have a relationship with God the Father, and we have another relationship with Jesus Christ the Son, and we have another relationship with the Holy Spirit. Nor is it to say that we have a relationship with God, Father, Son, and the conglomerate of the divine persons. To be in relationship with God means that we are brought inside the very relationship that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit share with each other. As you read the Gospel of John, and I hope you will. It's got great stories about Jesus and His healing and miracle and signs, but it also fleshes out what is most important in the Gospel of John is the relationship that Jesus has with His Father. Jesus said, I don't do anything that the Father has not instructed me to do. I don't say anything that the Father has not given me words for. The whole Gospel of John is built around the notion that Jesus Christ is doing what the Father wants him to do, and it fleshes out the depth of this relationship that exists within the Trinity. You see, it's one thing to become friends with another person. It's quite another to be brought into inside that friend's friendships. It's another to be invited into the community of friends, to, to have fellowship with all the people that are at the table, as it were. 
And that's what happens when we come to Christ. That's what happens in baptism. The power of the Holy Spirit invites us in and causes us to be adopted as children of God. And we then grow up in the grace of God, disciplined by Jesus Christ and discipled by Christ to abide in the very life of God, whose name and whose nurture is love. We're called then to do what Christ is doing because He's doing what God wants Him to do. So you can approach Romans 8 from two different ways as you reference the Trinity. You can try to figure out which person of God is coming, which is going, who's doing what, who's doing what when. It's like trying to figure out a train schedule. Or you can simply focus that God by His very nature, God's being, God's focus is internally and externally relational. Our connection with the Trinity is not a head trip where we simply meditate or ruminate about the nature of God, but it's a relationship. The very God of creation bearing witness with our spirit that we're children of God. John of Damascus, one of the early church fathers who lived in the 7th and 8th century, renounced the normal definitions and calculated reasoning about the Trinity and came up with a whole different term for the oneness and the threeness of God. He called it perichoresis, which loosely translated from the Greek means circle dance. In other words, the Trinity is not primarily defined by the distinctiveness or the unity or the substance of the persons involved, but rather is a circle, a dynamic community defined by love. To see one is to see all. To dance with one is to dance with all. Being invited into the circle then, into the circle of love, into this loving relationship that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit share with each other is a time we see God face to face, as it were, and His children hold hands and dance with loving parents. And we need that in our world. We as people of faith have a deep sense that we're living in the middle. Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He's everything in between, but sometimes we try to leave Him on the poles as first and last. And, and, and it gnaws at us that creation, God said it's good. As a matter of fact, God said creation's very good. And at the end of creation, at the culmination of history, it's good again. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And the one who sat upon the throne see, says, see, I'm making all things new. So we've got it good in the beginning. We've got it great in the end. But here we are in the middle. And sometimes it's just not so good. Sometimes in the middle where you and I live, it is broken. Sometimes it doesn't work out the way we expected it to. That life comes with surprises. Some are joyous, some are tragic. Our goodness is interrupted. 
We're rejected by a parent. We're coerced by a government. We're divorced by a spouse. We're fired by an employer. We're discriminated against by a society. We are injured by another's carelessness. All this is life taking place in a creation that God said is very good and a creation that will end in perfect bliss. But our life here has disappointments and contradictions not to be explained absurdities, bewildering paradoxes. Each of them is a reversal of expectation. So the Trinity then becomes the pastor in our lives. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit accompanies us in the middle, facing with us the ugly details, the meaningless routines, the mocking wickedness, and all the time doggedly insisting on the unaccountably unloving middle that is still connected to the splendid beginning and the glorious ending. The mystery of the Trinity allows us to sustain and thrive in a world in the middle, in a time and place where little makes sense anymore, in a world in which we shrug our shoulders at the mysterious motivations of our culture, we have the comforting knowledge that this theological mystery that the church proclaims that we don't understand the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three in one, one in three, has invited us into the circle of love. As we learn that divine dance, we become children of God. And the truth is, we'll probably never understand the Trinity by trying to define it. Even Paul, one of the most prolific writers and theologians of his day, runs around it. The only way we'll get the Trinity is to join the circle, to dance the dance, and to live the relationship. And what a difference that relationship with Jesus Christ would make. Would you stand and pray with me? We thank You, O God, that we don't understand everything, that there are mysteries in our life and in the world You created. Even as we try to describe and talk about You, You are bigger than our language. You are bigger than our thoughts. You're bigger than our problems. We can't define you or describe you, but we believe in you. Walk with us in a way that changes our lives. Walk with us in a way where we would know the unconditional love and the grace of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Trinity Podcast. To find out more about Trinity, visit us online at www.trinityreston.org.